hymn writer by the name of Horatio Spafford, which is a pretty cool name. Horatio Spafford lived in the 19th century, had four daughters, and he and his wife and daughters were planning a vacation. They were going to go across the Atlantic Ocean uh, to England or Ireland or someplace, I don't remember the exact details, but he was, it was a cross-ocean journey. But he had some work to finish up back home before he could join his wife and their daughters, and so he sent them on ahead. So they got on a ship and were headed out to their destination, and Horatio planned to join them just a few days later. Tragically, the ship was caught in a storm, and the waves and the wind overtook the ship, and it sank. And many people on the ship drowned, although some were rescued. But Horatio's wife sent a telegram uh, to him at home that said two words only, saved alone. So his wife was spared, but all four of their daughters drowned at sea on their way to vacation. Just a few days after this tragedy in his life, Horatio penned these words that you might be familiar with. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How can one have such confident faith in Jesus, confident faith in the gospel amid the trials and sorrows of this life. I think we'll find some help along the way in John chapter 11. I'd invite you to turn there in your copy of the scriptures as we continue our journey through John's gospel, life in his name. Last week saw Jesus beginning his journey to Bethany, a small village about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is enemy territory. This is hostile zone for Jesus. And as he travels back toward Jerusalem, his disciples are sure that they're going there to die. Thomas, in fact, said that in verse 16. Well, let's go with him so that we can die too. Because this is a suicide mission going back to Jerusalem where the leaders of the Jewish religion are attempting to, to seize and kill Jesus. And he knows that this cannot mean good things. And so Jesus is traveling to Bethany because he's heard that his friend Lazarus is sick. Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, have sent word to Jesus. He whom you love is ill. Pause. Kids, we have crayons and activity sheets in the back for you. And I forgot to give you the clear, so go get those now. I apologize. Yes. What? I didn't put out Bibles? Does anybody need a Bible? You don't have a copy of the Scriptures and you'd like to have one with you? Raise your hand. Okay, I think we're good. Awesome! Unpause. So Jesus and his disciples are headed to Bethany because they've received word that Lazarus is ill. And we saw last week that love doesn't always look like we expect, right? Because you'd think Jesus is going to rush to Bethany and heal Lazarus and keep anything bad from happening. But it tells us in verse 6 of John 11 that because he loved them, therefore he waited. He waited two days before he departed. And he only left when he knew that Lazarus had passed away. 
And so we reflected last week on the nature of God's love and how the suffering and sorrows and tragedy that come our way are not an indication that God has abandoned us or that God doesn't care about us or that God isn't powerful enough to do something about the trials, but that God loves us and therefore He lets us experience hardships and trials and loss and He meets us in the hardship and the loss and He's working, as He told His disciples, for His glory. So the story continues today with Jesus and His disciples arriving in Bethany village of Bethany. Now we know how John 11 is going to end, but the, the players in the story don't. So he arrives in the middle of weeping and mourning and a period of intense grief on the part of Lazarus' family and many from Jerusalem who have come to mourn with him. Look at, with me at verse 17, if you will. I'm going to read some, pause and talk, read some, pause and talk, all right? instead of reading the whole passage. Luke, I mean, excuse me, John 11, verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for days. Now that detail is important because there was a rabbinic tradition, that is the teaching of Jewish rabbis, that, that said that the human soul hovers around the body for about three days. So if a person dies, the soul hovers near the body, and if the body could somehow be resuscitated during that time, the soul would reconnect itself to the body, and all would be well again. That was the sort of Jewish teaching that had emerged uh, during this time. So I think it's strategic that Jesus waited until he had been dead for days. No one is going to make the mistake that, oh, well, he was just asleep, or he just needed to be revived. Right, He was dead, and everybody knew. He's been dead four days. Even if they believed that the spirit would have hovered around the body for three of those days, it's gone by now. So when Jesus is going to perform this amazing miracle of raising Lazarus, everyone will know he was dead, and then he lived again, because Jesus has the power over death and life. But we're not there yet. That comes next week. The glory, the joy, the resurrection, that comes next week. So we still find uh, the family in grief. Look at verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. This is a scene of sorrow and weeping and grief funerals during that day could have lasted up to a, a week. And so this family apparently was fairly prominent in the area because you've got many people from Jerusalem nearby who had come to spend the week mourning with Martha and Mary and with the family. And so when Jesus arrives, this is not a happy place, right? This is a sorrowful, weeping, mourning, grieving community over the death of Lazarus. When Jesus enters the town, Martha comes flying out to meet him. Martha's the older of the two sisters that we read of in this passage, Martha and Mary. So Martha comes out to meet him as soon as she heard that he was coming. In verse 20, Martha heard that Jesus was coming, so she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. So Mary is still with her friends and other family mourning in the house. 
and has not yet come to Jesus. But Martha sets off for him. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now I think that this is a confession of faith. There are some who charge Martha here with sort of griping at Jesus. As though when he gets here, she can't wait to run out to meet him to give him the what for. right? To kind of wag her finger. If you had been here in time, none of this would have happened. But I don't think that this is griping at Jesus. In fact, her confession of faith in Jesus only gets stronger as this conversation goes on. And in this conversation, in this exchange between Jesus and Martha, we're going to find uh, an example, a model for in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials and our loss, an encouragement, an exhortation, if you will, to look for Jesus through the tears. Look for Jesus through the tears. And so she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think she simply means, even though you didn't get here in time to heal my brother, I still believe that you have a unique relationship with God. As she said, I, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, He will give you. I don't think she's expecting what is in Jesus' mind. I don't think she's expecting Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. She expresses a confidence that He could have healed him. Now that He is dead, I don't think it's in her mind, Jesus is probably going to raise him from the dead. And we know that because in just a minute, um, when Jesus uh, asks him if, he, if she believes in the resurrection, uh, she says, yes, I know that he will rise on the last day. So she's looking to the end of time when Jesus returns. There's going to be a resurrection in the end, and I know that he'll rise on that day. And when we get to the tomb later next week, she actually objects to Jesus having the stone rolled away. She says, ah, it smells bad. Right? There's an odor because he's been in there four days. I wouldn't do that if I were you. I think if she expected Jesus to raise him from the dead, she wouldn't be objecting to him moving toward the tomb and rolling the stone away. So I don't think she, by, by God will give you whatever you ask. I don't think she means, but you're still going to raise him from the dead, right? I don't think that's in her mind. So she knows that her brother has died. She doesn't expect an immediate relief from that grief or that situation to change. And yet through the grief, through the sorrow, through the tears, she is able to glimpse Jesus enough to say, I know that you are unique. I know that whatever, God, that whatever you ask of God, He will give you. I know that you have a special connection and relationship to God the Father. Now whether she understood the fullness of Jesus' deity, that is his godness, that he is the eternal word made flesh, I'm not sure. But there's at least enough confidence there in the uniqueness of Jesus and his relationship with God that she doesn't lose sight of that in the midst of her grief. So she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says to her in verse 25, excuse me, verse 23, Jesus said, your brother will rise again. She doesn't get the immediacy of what Jesus is saying, right? So Jesus hits the pause button and zooms in. No, Martha, that's not what I mean. 
I'm not just talking about the last day. I'm not just talking about the resurrection at the end. There's, I'm not just talking about a future hope of life to come. But he doesn't clarify what he's going to do. So when he pauses and zooms in, he doesn't go, no, 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 I mean I'm going to raise him from the dead. He doesn't, he doesn't clarify what's about to happen. He clarifies who he is. Check this out in verse 25. He says, your brother will rise. She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I am the resurrection and the life. This, by the way, is the fifth of seven I am statements that Jesus makes about himself throughout John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Um, So he makes these statements throughout the gospel later. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All right. So I am the resurrection and the life. No, not I bring resurrection. I bring life. But I am resurrection. I am life. Only God can say that. Only the eternal word of God could say, I am life. You think back to John 1, the very beginning of this gospel, where you have this prologue announcing the word of God. The word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He says of him in John 1, 4, in him was life. That can only be said about God. Life is in him. He is the very source of life life. No, no, he doesn't merely say, I can bring life or I can help your life. He says, I am life. I think it's interesting that he clarifies not what he's going to do, but who he is. Because here's the thing, knowing who Jesus is, having a rock-solid foundation concerning his nature and character is more important in your time of grief than a promise that he's going to fix the pain. Than the assurance that Jesus is going to change the situation and make the hardship go away. That's not what he thinks you need. He thinks what you need is to know who he is. So he doesn't say to Martha, no, no, don't worry. I'm going to raise him from the dead. What he says is, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Only an unwavering, rock-steady faith in the goodness of God, will carry you through your seasons of suffering and loss. I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, you are in the very presence of the one who gives and takes life. The one who is sovereign over life and death. And then this beautiful promise in verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's been promising eternal life throughout this gospel. We saw it back in John 3, most famously in John 3, 16. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He said it throughout His speech in John 5 and 6, that whoever would believe on the Son of Man would have eternal life. Whoever would eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood would live forever. 
speaking of receiving him by faith. Jesus throughout this gospel is promising if you'll just believe, if you'll just know who I am and place your life in my hands, in my care, you'll live forever. You'll have eternal life. Even though you die, yet shall you live, right? In other words, you will live again. There will be resurrection. Yes, your body's going to die, but your soul never dies. And one day, your soul and your body will be reunited with one another in the resurrection. So Jesus, again, promises this eternal life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes will never die. And then he asks her plainly, almost uncomfortably plainly, do you believe this? That's a hard question sometimes, right? You hear people kind of talk about, you know, spouting off Bible truths or things about God or whatever. And then somebody just looks right at you in the eye and says, do you believe this? Well, I think I do, right? I, w- I want to. Yes, with a question mark, right? Do you believe this? Jesus is looking in Martha's eyes. I'm the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, even though he dies, he will live. Do you believe this? Well, the Holy Spirit would turn his gaze upon us today, each of us, look in our eyes and say, do you believe? Do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that eternal life and hope and a future in God's presence is available only through me, through faith in me. Repent of your sin and turn to me for forgiveness and salvation and I alone can give you life. Do you believe this? And I love Martha's response here. Such a picture of seeing Jesus through the tears in verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This confession might sound familiar to you. There's two other places where this very confession comes to play. The first that comes to my mind is the confession of Peter in Matthew 16. Jesus is speaking with his disciples and he says, who do other people say that I am? And they start to give some answers. Some people say you're a prophet. Some people say maybe you're a reincarnation of Elijah, right? a man of God, and then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? The most important question any of us will ever answer. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And upon this rock, not Peter, the rock of that confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The good confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, and the Son of God. That's the confession. That's the truth upon which, the foundation upon which Jesus is going to build his church. That's exactly the confession that Martha makes here. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God may also be familiar to you because we read it together most Sundays at the end of the service. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, where John tells us the very reason he's writing this story. He says, I've written these things that you may believe. What? 
that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. The very confession that John is trying to persuade in his readers is the confession that Martha makes to Jesus. You are the Christ. You are the promised one from God. The one sent from heaven to redeem His people. You are the Son of God. God Himself in human flesh. Her vision of Jesus is clear enough and strong enough that she can still make Him out through the fog of grief and sadness. What about you? Is your picture of Jesus Christ enough to sustain you when life falls apart around you? Is your confidence in His wisdom and His plans for you strong enough to hold you up when the doctor has bad news? Is your knowledge of His goodness and love deep enough to weather the loss of a loved one? Look to His Word. Consider His ways. Learn His heart. Build your confidence in Jesus now so that when suffering comes, you are ready to say with Horatio Spafford, whatever my lot, it is well with my soul. We've got to ground ourselves in the truths of God's Word. Who is God? Who is Jesus? What is the Gospel? What has He done to make me new and give me a new life and an eternal hope and a future. And we've got to know that down in our bones so that when the suffering comes and rocks the ship, we stand steady. We remain anchored in Jesus Christ. And I love the picture of Martha's anchored faith in Jesus in the midst of tremendous grief. So we learn by looking at Martha the need to look for Jesus through our tears. Through the fog of grief, maintain, seek out a picture of Jesus and His power and His goodness and His love that will hold you up through the time of suffering. Well, we're going to learn a little bit different lesson from her sister Mary. Mary's going to come out meet Jesus. And from Mary, we're going to see something more like this. Jesus is okay with your tears. Jesus gives us permission to grieve. You know, some Christians think that we shouldn't be very sad, or at least not very long, right? Christianity is all about joy and peace, and so we should just feel better, right? We should not really suffer, and when sadness comes, we should just kind of brush it off. Chin up, nope, everything, stiff upper lip, everything's just fine, right? A pastor shared the story of uh, comforting a grieving widow before a funeral service. They've been married for 40 years or something, and her husband's just died, and she's, you know, in tears, and he's trying to just bring her comfort and just be there for her. And a former pastor of hers from another community walked up to them, and he said, praise the Lord, Scott's in glory now. And he said, I wanted to punch him. This woman is weeping and grieving and you're just casting all that aside and going like, what's the problem, right? You should be happy. Scott's in a better place, right? He's with Jesus now, so why the long face, right? It's like the reality of life, the reality of grief is not sinful. 
It's not a sin to be sad. It's not wrong to grieve or to mourn. Please notice that in this entire scene, which is filled with grief and mourning and weeping, Jesus never rebukes anyone for their grief. He never says, come on, people, get it together. Don't you know that I came to bring you joy? Jesus never says that. In fact, he not only gives us permission to grieve, but he shares in our grief. Look at verse 33. Start back at 28. So when she had said this, that's Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you, speaking of Jesus. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. So she had met him outside of town as he was on his way in. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Okay, so we're just changing the location of our grief to the tomb. But when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Which is the very same thing that Martha had said. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. When Mary gets to Jesus, she just collapses. She just falls to the ground in tears. Lord, if you had been here. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she's just weeping. You know, when I see Mary falling at Jesus' feet, I can't help but be reminded of, of my little boys at times when they're very young, where maybe they bump their head or they scrape their knee or something, but they don't burst into tears right away. There's a, there's a moment where they're kind of scanning the room to find Lindsay or me. And it's only when they find us, it's only when they've locked eyes with their mom that the tears come, Right? It's like they need permission to cry. They need permission to, to break down and to weep about the pain. As Mary falls weeping at the feet of the Lord. It's like Jesus is here. I've been waiting for Jesus to be here, and now that he's here, Jesus collapses. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus' response is a little bit unnerving in some ways. It says that he was deeply moved in his spirit. The language behind that phrase, the Greek behind that phrase, means literally to snort with anger. So deeply moved doesn't just mean he felt sad. It actually means that he felt irate. He felt outrage. And the question that I'm asking myself is, at what? Right? Like, is he mad at Mary and Martha? And the mourners for their sadness? I don't think so. A lack of faith? I, I don't think that's why for three reasons. First of all, he's already seen faith in Martha and Mary. That confession of faith of, Mary, of Martha when she met him at the road and said, even now I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. And then even further saying, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. This is faith. So I don't think he's angry at a lack of faith. I think he's seen faith. And I think Mary expressed that same idea. Lord, I know that if you had been here, things would have been different. Even if there's a little bit of a sting 
when it comes from Mary because it's in the, in the midst of this, these tears. She knows that Jesus is able to change things. She knows that Jesus has the power. So I, I think he's seen faith already, so I don't think he's angry about a lack of faith. Secondly, his usual response to human sorrow is not anger but compassion. That's what we see in Jesus all over the Gospels. When he's in the presence of brokenness and sorrow and suffering, he doesn't get angry at them. He's compassionate toward them. Often he heals them. And third, he would soon join them in their weeping. If he was angry because they were crying about Lazarus' death, then he's going to be a hypocrite in two verses because he's going to join them in weeping. No, I think he's angry at the damage and the brokenness that sin and death bring to his people. It wasn't supposed to be this way. That's not the way God made the world. God made Adam and Eve in innocence and perfection to live forever and enjoy fellowship with him and with one another. Sin messed it up. Sin broke the whole thing. And now death is a regular reality that we face. And Jesus is in the midst of all of this grief. And this brokenness and this sadness, I think he's reminded death, this great enemy, and the, the, the ravaging of his people. R.C. Sproul, the great and now late theologian, said this, He was in the presence of the ravaging destruction of the greatest enemy of mankind, death. This was his enemy. This was the foe that in only a few days he was going to confront head-on in the throes of the agony he would experience on the cross, dying to conquer death. Because remember, he's just days away now from entering Jerusalem and giving up his life. Death is on the horizon, and he's now up close and personal with the, the sorrow and the brokenness that death brings into the lives of his loved ones and of his people. He asks them to lead, them, lead him to the tomb. Verse 34, he says, where have you laid him? And they said, come and see. In verse 35, the shortest verse in all the Bible, but perhaps one of the most poignant, Jesus wept. You remember Hebrews 4, 15? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in every way was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus hurts when you hurt. Jesus grieves when you grieve. Jesus knows your sorrows and he feels them. That's what, I think that's what we see Jesus doing here. He's weeping with those who weep, like Romans 12, 15 tells us to do. Weep with those who weep. Jesus doesn't roll his eyes at our pain. Jesus doesn't rebuke our pain. He doesn't even preach at our pain. He enters our pain. In fact, he enters our pain to such an extent that very shortly after the events of John 11, he will enter Jerusalem for the last time, knowing full well that it means his death. You see, he's on his way to a hill outside Jerusalem where he would be nailed to a sinner's cross, bearing in himself not his own sin and brokenness, but ours. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Jesus is moved by our grief to the extent that He will take it upon Himself. To the extent that He would humble Himself, not just to the point of becoming a human being like us, not just to the point of being a servant among human beings, but to the point that He will give His life as a sacrifice for us. He would become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2. In our hardship, in our suffering, tempted though we may be to think, God has abandoned me. God doesn't care about me. God's not able to fix things or to make anything better or to make me feel better. No, friends, remember that Jesus enters our grief. Jesus shares our pain and bears our burdens. Not only in a sentimental, emotional sense where he feels it along with us, although that is true, that is a reality but in the sense that He took action. He gave up Himself that we might have life, that we might have hope, and that we might know Him in the midst of our sorrows and our brokenness. Paul instructs the Thessalonians in chapter 4 of his first letter to them. that He says, "I I don't want you to be unaware about the coming resurrection." so that you may grieve, not as the world does, who have no hope, right? So he says, he doesn't say don't grieve. He doesn't say when you lose somebody that you shouldn't be sad about it. What he says is, grieve with hope. Grieve with hope, because we know that the ending is good. We know that there is an eternal future, a weight of glory that God is building for us and storing up for us through our suffering that is better than what we can imagine. You can't see it right now, but it's coming. Romans 8.18, Paul says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. Which sounds almost absurd. Think of the sufferings that people endure, the sufferings that come into our life. And Paul himself was no stranger to suffering. Beaten, left for dead, shipwrecked, imprisoned, abandoned by friends and co-workers, right? Paul knew what it meant to suffer. So he's not saying suffering is no big deal. What he's saying is the glory that God is preparing for us is so much beyond the intensity of our suffering that They don't even belong in the same sentence with each other. You don't even compare, is our suffering, and is is the glory that's to come worth the suffering that we endure? It's not even worth comparing it. He is storing up for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. For those who know Jesus, for those whose faith in Jesus Christ is anchored in the good news, that He came for sinners, that He lived obediently in our place. 
that he died on the cross for our sins and our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. And that he rose to life again. And life is available through him and him alone. For those who know Jesus Christ, the sorrows and the sufferings and the burdens and the grief of this life, no matter how intense and no matter how long it seems to last, we know that there is a future coming that is far greater than the suffering that we're enduring now. And in the midst of the suffering, we have a Savior who is there with us. We have a Savior who will suffer alongside us, who wants us to know Him and share in His life and His love as we suffer. So friends, when suffering comes, when the hardship comes your way, don't lose sight of Jesus Christ. Look for Jesus through the tears. Look for Him through the fog of grief and know that in the midst of your pain and your suffering, He is there with you. And He feels every pang and every sorrow.